Good morning. <clears throat> this is Attorney Vincent Davis, and you're on this morning with Get Your Kids Back Now. This is a radio show dedicated to assisting people in their fight against the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. It's a, a second purpose of this show is to educate parents and relatives so that they can get the information so that they can help themselves and help their attorneys in cases where they have um, where they are fighting the social workers in uh, juvenile dependency court. The third purpose of this show is to organize people to get them together so that they can vote and vote for those friendly legislators and those friendly judges who are child and family sensitive in our juvenile court system. Good morning all. Today is July 9th. 2016, and today's show we are going to be focusing on the trial and how to win a juvenile court trial or a CPS trial. In juvenile court, um, there are several times during the the juvenile court proceedings where you're entitled to what is commonly referred to as a contested hearing. And that means generally what it sounds like. It's where you can contest a recommendation uh, by a social worker in order to get your children back. The first time that you're entitled to have such a hearing is right at the beginning. It's from the very first day at the detention hearing. You are entitled to have what is called a contested detention hearing, where you can call to the stand, the social worker who made the report or who is making the recommend the initial report and who's making the initial rec- uh, recommendation to detain your children from you. At that hearing, and, and most people don't know this, but at that hearing, when you when you uh, demand to have the, the uh, social worker put on the stand, uh, the county and the social worker department has to bring the social worker inside the courtroom so that they can get on the stand to testify. In some counties, um, I've noticed that, for example, San Diego County, I've noticed that in a lot of times when uh, I've gone to a detention hearing, they have the social worker available right there in the courtroom. But in other counties like Los Angeles, the social worker is rarely there at the initial first hearing. And I'm talking about the social worker that is known as the emergency response worker. This is generally the social worker who came out and who detained your children from you and has written the first report uh, to the juvenile court judge, which is called the detention report. So generally, you will get the this package of discovery and this detention report um, check-in uh, for the court on that day. And what will happen is you'll generally read the report. Uh, it'll be given to you by your attorney, be that a court-appointed attorney or a private attorney that you've hired. And there's going to be some, I'm sure, some dispute almost always there is, uh, about um, what has been said in the juvenile dependency uh, report. Um, Hence, my advice to people uh, at the beginning of cases um, not to speak to social workers because inevitably um, what happens is the social worker report contains some inaccuracies. A lot of times people tell me those inaccuracies are due to mistake, and a lot of times those people people tell me that those inaccuracies are due to, I guess, intentional or negligent twisting of what was said to the social worker during the initial investigation. So you have the right to place that social worker on the stand and 
cross-examine her or have your attorney cross-examine her so that you can show the judge that there is no immediate substantial risk that the child be taken from you. Probably nine times out of ten, perhaps nine and a half times out of ten, this is not done. Now, there could be some strategic reason why you and your attorney would not want to do this. However, the general rule that I operate by um, is that we would call the social worker in, put the social worker on the stand, and cross-examine the social worker. In a lot of cases, um, the social worker's investigation, the social worker's conclusions, the social worker's facts can be challenged. So this is what I would call a contested hearing or a miniature trial. And this can happen on the very first day, the very first day that you have, uh, have to appear in court. Now, the first day that you have a hearing, you can continue this hearing in order to better prepare and perhaps even get your own witnesses to court by continuing it one day. You're entitled uh, to a one-day continuance. So in a lot of cases uh, where you want to have a juvenile court hearing, you could continue it to one day so that you and your attorney can be prepared. We were recently on a case where uh, the I had talked to the clients, um, the mother, uh, on a couple of occasions before the hearing date, her very first hearing date. And for whatever reason, she decided not to hire us and to go to court that day and to use the court-appointed attorney. Well, during the hearing, during the hearing, I... I get a text from the client <clears throat> telling me what's going on, and she's indicating to me that she now wants to hire us, that she doesn't want to use the court-appointed attorney. So I text her back, and I told her to tell the court-appointed attorney and the judge that uh, you know she's going to be hiring me and that I will come in and uh, take over the case the next day. There was a lot of confusion, and according to the client in the text, the attorney informed her that uh, that could not be done. And I think the client even testified, or not testified, but text me that <clears throat> the judge even said that it can't be done. I text the um, client back with the code section that was applicable, and uh, later on in that afternoon, they were uh, allowed to continue the hearing and uh, allowed us to come in and take over the case the next day. So be aware that you are entitled to an automatic one-day continuance of the detention hearing to better prepare. Um, Be aware that uh, you are able to call the social worker to the stand and cross-examine her and be aware that in some instances, and it's a very gray area, that in some instances, the judge may allow you to call witnesses yourself. Now, I say in some instances because, remember, this is not, this is not the main trial in the juvenile dependency case. It is the hearing where it's decided if there is a what they call a prima facie case to detain your child. And by prima facie, I mean <clears throat> that's a legal term, but that what it basically means is that is there enough evidence, be it true or false, presented to the judge that would require the judge to detain the child from your custody on a temporary basis? Now, the reason why you're not entitled to a full-blown hearing that day, other than nobody's really prepared for it, because remember, you and your attorney just got this information, is that you are entitled to have a full-blown trial on these allegations against you. 
<clears throat> and that trial um, is supposed to take place within 15 court days of your first hearing, so a very short time. I practice and my firm practices in a lot of counties in California. And what we have seen is a lot of courts generally set trials perhaps a month, a month and a half, sometimes two, and even in some courtrooms, sometimes longer. Um, and they do not set the hearing within the 15 court days. If you and your attorney at that very first hearing don't insist upon having um, a trial without waiving time, it's generally referred to as a no-time waiver trial, um, that right is waived by you. And a lot of people tell me, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know I could have a hearing within 15 court days. Um, most courts in California have a very uh, crowded court calendar. And I get the feeling it's not something a lot of courts want to do, uh, having everyone do a um, no-time waiver trial. Uh, suffice it to say that um, a lot of things can happen uh, over a period of time. And, and, and one of the things that happens is it gives the, um, gives the social workers a lot of time to gather evidence and to gather witnesses against you. It allows them to do a complete, complete investigation where they can talk to witnesses, gather evidence, and they can use it against you at the time of the hearing uh, that you're going to have in the future. Now, let's just jump forward to uh, a trial. In juvenile dependency court, um, in most cases and in most courtrooms throughout the state of California, they now do two separate hearings in one. They do something called the jurisdictional hearing, which I refer to as the adjudication, and the dispositional hearing um, at the same time. But they are two distinct and different hearings within the law. At a jurisdictional hearing, uh, the court has to decide whether the allegations against you are true in part or in whole. And it must use the uh, burden of proof test. The social worker must prove by a burden of proof, by a preponderance of the evidence, the lowest standard in California law, uh, generally more than 50%, that something is true. Now, that's a very, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, a very uh, small burden for the social worker to prove that something is wrong. However, you and your attorney can um, defend against the allegations uh, with proper planning, proper subpoenaing of witnesses, and uh, a strategic plan to defeat the allegations against you. Now listen, I'm not telling you that you can win every, prove every allegation to be false, because generally it's not true. Generally, social workers you know, might allege 10 things and maybe three or four of them are definitely true. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should be within, within the ju jurisdiction of the juvenile dependency court. But since we're just talking about trials now, what you want to do is you want to meet with your attorney uh, before the trial, you want to come up with a plan as to what witnesses you're going to bring in and what witnesses needed, needs to be subpoenaed by your attorney. And you're going to come up with documents, um, a list of documents that you need that can be used to help prove you know, your innocence. Um, we were recently involved in a case where we needed medical documents uh, to help prove our client's innocence. 
Uh, not too long ago, we needed uh, documents from a therapist uh, to help prove that our client was innocent. And in both of those cases, subpoenas had to be sent out within enough time so that the, the custodian of records of both the hospital and the therapist office uh, could you know, show up and uh, present those documents to the court. A lot of times people go out and get documents on their own. And that helps. That will help your attorney prepare. But that does not mean that that document that you and your attorney are using to prepare will be admissible in a court of law. It would be admissible if all of the attorneys, including the social worker's attorney and the minor's attorney, and sometimes they're against you, agrees without any further what they call foundation. However, just showing up with a piece of paper in court does not mean that it's admissible because there are foundational problems. Who knows if that is the correct uh, piece of paper or if somebody just made it up. Also, um, there's a hearsay problem. Generally, pieces of paper uh, that were produced outside the courtroom, not outside the court process, outside the courtroom, they're hearsay. Now, there is an exception to the hearsay rule, and one of them is called the business records exception. But in order to get the business record exception applied, you have to comply with certain tests. One of the tests is that you have to subpoena the documents from the person or the custodian of record, and that subpoena or, or those documents must be accompanied by a declaration from that witness or the custodian of records saying that those documents are true and correct. And many times what happens is that when you get the declaration, the declaration itself is defective. And I have been involved in cases where when the declaration uh, you know, is defective, the opposing attorney objects to the documents coming in, and then there you are. You've subpoenaed the documents, you've got a defective declaration from the custodian of records or the witness, and the, de and the uh, documents are not allowed into evidence by the judge. This doesn't happen all the time. Or I should say it rarely happens in juvenile dependency court, but it's something that you have to consider and you have to be ready for. On the other hand, what I like to do, and I know a lot of people don't like this uh, because it puts people out of, uh, makes people inconvenient, is I actually subpoena in the witness who created the document, and I subpoena in the document itself. Then I don't need a declaration, and I can just ask the witness about the document. And in my opinion, in a lot of cases, that's more powerful. So um, it's more powerful evidence to the trier of fact, in this case, the juvenile dependency court judge. So, for example, in that case that I told you about the medical records, if it was a medical record uh, created by a doctor, uh, I, I just... You know, I uh, don't want to uh, subpoena in the record. In most cases, and, I, and I'm saying most, not all, in most cases I would subpoena in the doctor, himself or herself. And in a lot of cases where the medical record was um, uh, produced or created by a nurse, likewise I would want to subpoena in that nurse. And uh, sometimes there's medical records uh, created by uh, hospital social workers, and uh, if I want to subpoena that document in or get that record into evidence, I will also subpoena in the uh, social worker from the hospital. Now, these social workers from the hospital are generally different from the county social workers who are bringing the case against you. So you want to be, make sure that those distinctions are made and that you and your attorney are subpoenaing the correct social workers. There's all kinds of social workers in life. Um, and the social worker that uh, 
uh, is bringing this case against you usually works for the county agency, uh, Child Protective Services, CPS, or in Los Angeles County, it's known as the Department of Children and Family Services. Uh, in some other counties, it's known as the Department of Family Services. And there's different names as you go throughout your state, or excuse me, the state of California, and they call it different things. So you want to make sure you get those documents. You want to make sure that you subpoena in those witnesses. And you want to make sure that you and your attorney have planned that you're going to present these documents in a coherent and story-like manner. Now, we've been talking about how to defend yourself in the jurisdictional hearing. I want to tell you some bad news. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I forget it was, when it was, the California Supreme Court ruled that even though parents could not use hearsay, including hearsay documents, the social worker can. And the state of California, excuse me, the Supreme Court of California uh, gave uh, a lot of reasons about why that can happen. Uh, I, at the time, and you know, mostly today, I still disagree with that. Uh, it seems inherently unfair, uh, perhaps not legally, but from the gut, um, from my notion of justice, uh, that if one side can use hearsay and hearsay documents and the other side can't, that puts you at a distinct disadvantage uh, right from the get-go. And I see that disadvantage many, many times in cases where I represent people we have uh, what's called multiple hearsay uh, used against clients. It's accepted as true. And then the clients have to go through, you know, uh, the parents have to go jumping through hoops and over hurdles to tr try to prove something is uh, not correct. So I'll give you an example of multiple hearsay. Um, multiple hearsay would be the nurse saying what the doctor was told by the ER doctor. So there you have three levels of hearsay. You have something said by the ER doctor, the emergency room doctor, to the regular staff doctor, and the regular staff doctor tells the nurse, and then the nurse repeats it to the social worker. The social worker puts it in her jurisdiction report, and then what happens is the statement by the original emergency room doctor is admitted into evidence and accepted many times as true. Now, in order to defend against that, you and your attorney are going to have to subpoena in for definitely the emergency room doctor if you believe the emergency room doctor's testimony would be something different. And generally it is because when uh, doctor one tells doctor two, it tells the nurse, which tells the uh, social worker, social worker puts in a report, generally it's like everything else in life. Every time the story is told, it changes just a little bit. So in this particular example, you might want to uh, subpoena in the emergency room doctor. Now, and you might want to subpoena in the, the doctor, and you might want to subpoena in the nurse, and you might want to subpoena in, uh, definitely subpoena in the social worker so that the social worker cross-examine at the jurisdictional hearing. Now, generally, this is a different social worker than the social worker that you put on the stand or tried to put on the stand at the detention hearing. That was in Los Angeles County. They call it the emergency response worker. At the time of the jurisdictional trial, what we're talking about is usually called the dependency investigator and or the services worker. In Los Angeles County, after the detention hearing, generally two workers are assigned to the case, and that worker does the investigation on the case, and um, that worker, uh, and a se second social worker is assigned to provide services to you so that you can reunite with your children in the case that, uh, and in the manner if the children are taken away. Um, now, that's different in uh, a lot of counties. Um, I think in San Bernardino County, I've been on cases where the emergency response worker and the dependency investigator were the same people. And I've been on cases that recently where I think there was an emergency response worker and then there was a dependency investigator who was also the services worker. 
So each county does it a little different. And I think in some cases, each county does it a little different uh, within that county. Um, and I'm not sure why. I, I have a feeling it has to do with uh, budgetary constraints, money, uh, lack of social workers. Uh, San Bernardino was in bankruptcy uh, a year or two ago. I don't know if they're still in. And San Bernardino at one time had a flight of social workers leaving San Bernardino County, going to other counties, particularly Riverside, because San Bernardino was in bankruptcy and there was, you know, social workers were worried about their job, uh, concerned about raises, concerned about the amount of salary that they were given. So uh, San Bernardino County had to start doing things a little bit differently. But I digress. Getting back to the jurisdictional trial. So you've subpoenaed in your witnesses, you've subpoenaed in your documents, you have a plan, you have a list of witnesses, and you've gone over it with your attorney. Now, at a trial, generally what happens is um, the petitioner in the case, uh, also known in civil matters, the uh, plaintiff, petitioner here is the county that you live in, and they are given the right to go forward first. And generally what they do is they mark and try to introduce all of the reports and pieces of paper prepared by the social workers and given to the juvenile courts. Now here's something that I do, and I always watch out for, uh, to the disdain, I think, of attorneys uh, for social workers, minors' attorneys, and sometimes other parents' attorneys. And I get a bad feeling sometimes, I don't know why, from judges. What happens is on the day of trial, inevitably, the social worker presents a new report. Now, it can be a new report of one or two pages. It can be a new report of three or four pages. I've been on cases where they, you know, try to introduce a new report of 20 or more pages. And one of the things I always do, especially where the report does not help my client, is I object. I object to that report being used or considered or coming into evidence. The reason is, is because those reports usually contain contain damning evidence against the client. And I did not have any time to prepare uh, for the case, excuse me, for that new report. I didn't have any time to subpoena in new witnesses. I am told that, because, you know, I'm not on every case, but I am told in a lot of cases on the new reports, um, nobody objects to them. And in a lot of cases, it's a key reason or additional reasons why the client loses the jurisdictional hearing because of that evidence. So unless you and your attorney object to the uh, new report coming in, it will be come in and it will be considered by the judge. And it will be just another hurdle or series of hurdles that you're going to have to jump over to win the jurisdictional hearing. I recently was I objected to the uh, document coming into evidence and to be excluded. And uh, not too long ago, a judge um, told me that they were going that he or she was going to admit it over my objection and ask me, did I have any um, authority to? Um, to back up my, my objection. And I did have some authority. Uh, in the code itself and in the California Rules of Court, it states how many days before the hearing the report must be served on other parties and their attorneys. Now, in a lot of situations, um, particularly in... And I'll give you an example in San Bernardino. In San Bernardino, they have a system where the report is generated, and a few days before the report, before the court hearing, it's actually emailed to the uh, court-appointed attorneys. So the court-appointed attorney is not completely surprised on the day of trial. 
It's not emailed to all private attorneys in San Bernardino. It's not emailed to me. I'm trying to get on that system. Um, but it's also supposed to be served upon the party, the parent, him or herself. That is rarely done. So when you go to the hearing, if notice hasn't been given, you know, you or your attorney can cite the rule in the California Rules of Court or in the um, statute itself, the state statute itself, about the social workers not complying and trying to basically ambush you at the t- time of trial and trying to do something called trial by surprise. Now, I mention this because in regular civil law and in, and in uh, criminal law, especially in criminal law, this wouldn't be accepted um, uh, in most cases. But somehow there's a culture within the juvenile court that we accept this without challenging it. And a lot of times these reports are damning. They're just damning to the client's case. And it's almost as if social workers know this and they say, save some of the recent and good stuff they're going to use against you for that last minute report. It's not something that they learn, you know, the day before. It's usually something that they've known of for a couple of weeks and, you know, they haven't told anybody and then boom, they spring it on you on the day of court. So I object to it based upon that basis. A lot of smart county council are now using the argument that last-minute reports aren't covered by the rule of courts and by the statute itself. That's a very interesting argument. Um, It is, in my opinion, not a correct argument, but it's an argument they're making. So I always cite a second objection, and this is the one I get a lot of pushback on. Pushback in the sense you know, Mr. Davis, you're being, nobody said this, but Mr. Davis, you're being obstructive. And that's the feeling I get. And the second argument is, Your Honor, this violates the 14th Amendment to the United States and California Constitutions. You should see the looks I get when I mention that. As, you know, sometimes I feel as if the Constitution you know, doesn't seem to apply in juvenile dependency proceedings, but we all know that it does. So the 14th Amendment is the lack of proper notice or adequate notice. And the argument is, I show up at trial, you give me a new report with all types of hearsay statements and multiple hearsay statements, and you want to go forward with the trial and you just expect me to let this into evidence. No, 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 no. I will always object to it. And depending on the circumstances and the judge, some will agree with me, some will disagree with me. So what usually happens is is that um, most judges regrettably give me a continuance. Some judges don't mind giving continuances. They know that it's a problem. And uh, the continuance is given so that I can prepare. Now, sometimes the continuance is a couple of days. Sometimes the continuance is a week or two weeks. Sometimes the continuance is a month. I'm not always looking for continuances that are short, and sometimes I'm not looking for continuances that are long, uh, depending on the case and my clients, you know, um, what my client is trying to do in the case. So I'd rather have the uh, document not considered at all and be thrown out. Uh, That's rarely done. It has happened. It has happened. Um, But that's rarely done. Generally, judges want to give you a continuance and make you come back because they want to consider or they feel that they have a statutory obligation to consider everything that the social worker uh, puts in. And by reading the framework of the statute itself, to be fair, um, there probably is, uh, you know, judges who take that position probably are, you know, would be correct in most situations. Um, so they give the continuance. They don't exclude the report. So one thing I want to tell you is that the California Courts of Appeal have said that argument by attorneys is not evidence. Okay, I want to say that again. Argument by attorneys is not evidence. So if you ever think that you're having a trial 
and documents or social worker reports are entered against you, and all you and the other attorneys do is argue the case, in my opinion, nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, you're going to lose. And the reason why you're going to lose is because you and your attorney didn't put any evidence in the case to rebut the social worker's um, evidence in her reports or in his reports. So let's think about that for a second. You're having a trial and you don't introduce any evidence. I've told you that attorney's arguments are not evidence and you lose And then you walk outside, you scratch your head, and you think, how could I have lost that case? You know, the judge is being so unfair. You lost the case because you didn't produce any evidence to contradict what the social worker said. Judge had nothing to do with it. If you and your attorney and all the attorneys agree to do something by way of oral argument or just argument, eight times out of ten, Nine times out of ten, you're going to lose. A trial is, by definition, in my opinion, a hearing where you present evidence to the court. Evidence in terms of live witnesses. Evidence in terms of documents. So in order to have a trial, you need live witnesses on the stand being examined You need documents introduced into evidence. And all of these things perform or form what's called a defense, a defense for you regarding the allegations made by the social worker. As I said earlier, at the time of this jurisdictional hearing, the court is also doing something called a dispositional hearing. Now, these... Um, hearings, dispositional hearings, are for the court to decide whether or not the allegations are totally true or partially true, whether the child can be detained from you. So, for example, you can lose the dispos- excuse me, the adjudication or the jurisdictional hearing. But you can win the dispositional hearing. Let me say that again. You can lose the jurisdictional hearing, but win the dispositional hearing. And I'm not sure whether everyone, especially attorneys, understand that. The dispositional hearing is a hearing where the social worker must prove by Proved by clear and convincing evidence, not preponderance of evidence. They must prove by clear and convincing evidence that you are a substantial danger to the child. And, this is an important part, and there are no less restrictive alternatives to removing the children. Now, if you're listening to me on this radio show, I suggest you listen to the replay of this show or write this down right now because it's extremely, extremely important. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court of of our state and our, our countries have said that this hearing is what makes this entire juvenile dependency process constitutional. And that is, in order to make a final decision on whether removing children You have to do it at a heightened burden of evidence and a heightened standard. Remember at the jurisdictional hearing, they only had to prove by a preponderance of evidence that you are a risk to the children. At the dispositional hearing, they have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that you are a substantial danger, not just a danger, a substantial danger to the children, and there are no less restrictive alternatives. Now, I'm going to tell you about a case I did not too long ago in Los Angeles County. And uh, we were doing a dispositional hearing. 
I had the social worker on cross-examination. And the scenario was something like this. Ma'am, is my client a substantial danger to these children? The witness, the social worker, looked at me, looked at the judge, kind of looked at her attorney. I don't know why she was looking at her attorney. And then looked at me and said, a substantial danger? I said, yes, a substantial danger. And the social worker said, no. I was met with an objection um, by the county counsel, who's a very good county counsel, in my opinion, very experienced, and objected and said that the test was not substantial danger. Uh, It was, I think she said, a substantial risk. Yeah, I think I think I think that's what she said. She said the substantial risk. Now, I hadn't read this particular statute in you know a while, and I thought to myself, oh, this attorney, this county counsel is a very good attorney. She's very experienced. Maybe I'm wrong. So I asked for a moment, and I pulled out the code, and I looked it up. And as I was doing this, the judge was doing the same thing. And it said right there in the code for 2016 that they have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that the parent is a substantial danger to the children. Now, for a moment there, I thought I was the only one in the courtroom other than the judge that understood this. And... The other thing that the social worker had to prove was that by clear and convincing evidence, there were no less restrictive alternatives. Well, you know, in most cases, most cases, there's always less restrictive alternatives. But you know what the problem is? The problem is is that the counties can't or won't spend that federal money to implement those less restrictive alternatives. So what I do in some cases is I subpoena in the social workers that usually aren't on the case, and I have them testify to all the less restrictive alternatives there are. So let me give you an example. Los Angeles County, and every county has this because I think it's funded by a lot of millions of dollars of federal money. Um, there's some, Los Angeles has something called family preservation. Family preservation is, in some places, called wraparound services. But here's the gist. We think you're a marginal parent. We don't want to take the kids from you. So we're going to send someone every day, Monday through Friday, to your house and work with you for one, two, three, or four hours. And while we're there, we can see if the children are being taken care of properly, and we can see whether you are a risk or whether you are a danger to these children. So that's a less restrictive alternative. Don't take the kids from the family, but give them services to keep the family together. And as you might imagine, it costs a lot of money to send vendors and social workers to the house every day. I remember many, many years ago, um, I was asked to be a presenter uh, in Northern California um, at a juvenile dependency seminar for um, people who represented parents. And um, I remember after talking, many, many colleagues from small northern California counties came up to me and said, you know, Mr. Davis, I can't believe that L.A. County removes kids from their parents in drug cases. And I looked at him and I said, they don't remove kids in your county for drug cases? And he said, no, generally not. 
The reason is because our social workers can go to school every day and look at the kids, make sure they're being fed, make sure they're being clothed, make sure they're being bathed, and they're generally taken care of. And he said something to me that has always stayed with me. He said, you know, there is, there are things in the world called functional addicts, functional alcoholics. Now, it's not the best case scenario for a child, and I'm not saying that it is. But the law is not talking about best case scenarios. It's talking about is a parent a substantial danger to the child? Cases in some of those counties back then, I don't know if it's changed, um, you had people using drugs. Instead of taking their kids away, they, they were, you know, they had to make a, had to go do drug counseling, drug uh, rehabilitation, drug testing, that type of stuff. But they didn't take the kids away because the social worker could see them every day. Less restrictive alternative. Could that be done in Los Angeles County? I say yes. Could it be done with the system that we have now? I say no. I recently saw a deposition of a financial officer. I think it was the chief financial officer of um, the county social workers. I think this person was from Orange County. But it was very interesting to watch the videotape deposition because this person explained how these counties make money off of juvenile dependency cases. Yes, it's America, and it's a money-making proposition for the counties. And in my opinion, a lot of these counties, a lot of these departments of children's and family services, and a lot of these social workers, some, some of the social workers are unknown or are unknowingly doing this, are, are, are basically what they're doing is they're creating sales for their department, sales for their county. I think in Los Angeles County, they don't even explain the financial impacts of what they do until you're, I think, at the supervisor level. So if you're not a supervisor, you're being told by someone to do something. And a lot of times, in my opinion, it's being done not to protect children. That's what we just say. It's being done to generate income for the county. But if you're being told by your social worker, we're doing this to protect kids, I mean, if you're being told by your supervisor that we're, do, we're doing this to present, protect the children, that's what you're going to believe. But you're not going to know as a social worker why you're being told this. Is it really because we really fear Miss Johnson because she's, you know, uses heroin? You know, um, no. We're going to tell a different story. Um, but I digress again. Getting back to um, the dispositional hearing. So you always, 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 in my opinion, want to have a trial on at least positional hearing issues. So what happens in a lot of cases, you have the jurisdictional hearing. And after careful consideration, you might, as an attorney and a client, reasonably say, you know, some of that stuff was correct. You know, me and the husband, we did have of that fight. Uh, he was drunk, I had been drinking, um, and things got out of hand. Now, under the juvenile court law, that's going to be jurisdictional. Maybe. I say maybe be jurisdictional. I correct myself. Because there's arguments... Uh, that could be used to perhaps convince a judge that it's not a problem anymore and therefore not jurisdictional anymore. But let's just assume that it was. So you wouldn't want to really have a trial on that, mainly because you said it was true. Uh, you told the attorney that it was true. And you're not trying to prove something was false if you admit to you and your attorney uh, that it was true. What, you, what your attorney will generally do is um, come up with a plea bargain. Uh, 
or you can plead no contest to something being true or false. Now, here's the important thing. In that plea bargain, you may not want to plea bargain the dispositional phase of the case away. You may want to plea bargain the jurisdictional phase, but insist upon having a trial at the dispositional phase because, again, what makes this whole process constitutional? The heightened standards that the social worker must use, the heightened test that the social worker must prove to keep your children away from you, even though the jurisdictional part of the case is true. So at the dispositional phase, you you show the judge that the um, social worker cannot, I repeat, cannot prove by clear and convincing evidence that you're a substantial danger to the children and there's no less restrictive alternatives. So here's a formula just a formula, it's not for all cases, but you know, you should also you know, be talking to your attorney with a strategic plan and how to win a dispositional hearing. So here's a formula that I use, and it's always, you know, can be tweaked. Um, but the first thing is you've got to have the social worker who wrote the dispositional, the jurisdictional, and the dispositional report present in court. And that social worker is not going to be present unless you and your attorney subpoena that social worker to court. The second person that you want to be in court is the services worker if that person is different from uh, the person uh, that is the dependency investigator. Okay? So the next person you would want to come in and uh, testify are the people who are providing you the family reunification services. Now, those people are perhaps, in our example, they're the drug counselor, they're the parenting instructor, they're the domestic violence counselor, they're the drug testing facilities, facility, okay, uh, so I hope you get the picture. Those are the witnesses, and you would want them to bring your fi- bring their files so they can testify to the judge. You know what is true and what is false. The next set of people that you want to bring in are the people that um, could provide those less restrictive alternatives. And they could be the family preservation people. They could be the wraparound services social workers. So they will be subpoenaed in to testify as to the less restrictive alternatives. A lot of times the dependency investigator, when they do the case, uh, write the report, I get the feeling that they're not even considering, really, uh, the less restrictive uh, alternatives. Make sure that those witnesses are present. Now, many times I have experienced a phenomenon. And the phenomenon is, if you bring in all of these people and you subpoena in all of these people, The social worker's attorney is going to give you an offer you can't refuse. Generally, that offer is going to be perhaps return of the children. The offer might be, as in another case I had not too long ago, uh, leave the kids in foster care, but you can have overnight weekend visits, and if those are successful after a month or two, we'll return the children. So, Preparing for the trial, having your witnesses present is, in my opinion, always going to get you a better deal if you have to deal or negotiate. Good. 
The dispositional hearing, um, once it ends, the case will be continued for six months for what's called the six-month review. At the six-month review, you're entitled to have another trial. And that trial is to prove whether you are a substantial risk to the children. If you are a substantial risk, the children will not be returned to you. If you are not a substantial risk, the children have to be returned to you. Now, you're entitled to have this trial, and it's the same type of thing as the jurisdictional and dispositional hearing. You have to subpoena in the social workers. You have to subpoena in the... Sometimes you have to subpoena in the children. You have to subpoena in the... service providers who are providing you services. Because in a lot of cases, the social worker is going to recommend that the children not be returned. And you're going to have to prove to the judge that you're not a substantial risk to the children so that they can be returned. And you can only do that again, just like the jurisdictional hearing and the dispositional hearing. You can only do that with witnesses. You can only do that with documents. Okay. By the way, I want to say this. Between the dispositional hearing and the six-month review hearing, you are entitled to file what's called a 388 petition. You can just Google that, 388. And it's called a JV, I don't know, JV, it's a JV number form. I forget, JV 180, JV 285, something like that. But you can Google it. And that is a form where you and your attorney can file in order to change orders before the next month, the next six-month review. If you are given a trial on that date, uh, because in a lot of cases, judges don't give hearings or trials on 388s, um, be prepared in the same manner with witnesses and documents. Now, I've been talking a long time this morning. I'm right now going to take a call. And the first call is area code 702, ending in 78. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Did you have a question or do you want to tell a story? Um, I just wanted to kind of give a brief story um, related to some of the examples that you have provided on how important it is to be prepared when um, faced with a DCFS or a CPS case. Okay. So in relation to, oh, thank you. So in relation to what you were saying as far as making sure that you have substantial evidence, not stories or hearsay. Um, I really believe that that was very beneficial in my particular case when DCFS came in and um, blindsided me and my family, removing my uh, child from my custody. If it were not for the detailed documents that I had been personally keeping, emails, voicemails, text messages, um, corresponding with the department, I feel like the lies that they had written up would have had some some validity when we went to court. Um, DCFS was not aware that I had been keeping detailed track of everything that they had provided to me in the various forms that I, I mentioned, even in written form as well on some occasions. Um, I think that they handled me like what they felt was your typical um, guardian or parent or, you know, whoever that person may be at the time because a lot of people do not know how important it is to keep track. It's kind of like a receipt. You know, if you purchase something, you keep track of receipts just, just that just in case you may need to show proof of purchase or you may need to return it or whatever the case may be. So that's kind of how I handled them, especially in the very beginning when I started to see that a lot of what they were telling me was completely different after the fact 
um, I really started to notice how important it was to keep track. My attorney um, was very great in this process because uh, DCFS wanted to take my particular case all the way to trial. And it was almost like uh, my attorney and his staff kind of held on to this valued information until the day of trial. And it was almost at that very moment that we had all this physical evidence to present. And what do you say? They decided that they did not want to go to trial. They did not want to get on the stand. And my case was ultimately dismissed before any evidence was even brought about them. And I think that that speaks highly of DCFS because at that point, they didn't know what I had. They didn't know what I was coming with, but they did know that there were some things that I probably had in my possession at that point in time that would really discredit them. So they decided to just to do away with it. So, again, going back to what you said, um, Attorney Davis, that it is very important to have um, actual evidence, not just a story that has come from this person to the other. Very good. Well, thank you for your call. We're running out of time this morning for this morning's show. I want to remind you to please call in next week. We'll be talking more about uh, trials, more about uh, getting your children back, and uh, have a good weekend, everyone.